The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Synergizing for Success in HCC, Immunotherapy Advances and the Role of the Interventional Radiologist-Oncologist Collaboration Across the Disease Continuum. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash THZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's CME on Synergizing for Success in HCC. It's a really exciting time to be talking about the treatment of HCC because so much is shifting, and I feel very honored to be on stage here with Dr. Riyadh Salem, and we look forward to an educational session today. Uh, so today, my name is Lipika Goyle, and I'm from Stanford, and no one needs an introduction to Dr. Salem, who's from Northwestern. So our goal for the today are three parts. So one, talking about the role of immunotherapy in early stage, intermediate stage, and advanced stage HCC. Second, offering guidance on how to integrate immunotherapy in a multidisciplinary approach. And third, talking briefly about immune-related adverse events. So now we're in a phase where we've been there for the past decade, but now it's becoming even more important because of new data that's emerging about the partnership between interventional radiology and medical oncology. And so HCC, I think all of us know HCC is a relatively deadly disease. And most cancers, the incidence and the death are actually going down. But for HCC, the mortality is going up. It's one of four cancers in men and one of four cancers in women where the mortality is actually going up. And it's also increasing globally overall, not just in the United States. There are about a million people diagnosed with liver cancer each year. About 830,000 of them die each year. When your incidence and your mortality match each other, you know you're not doing that well in a disease. Uh, liver cancer is ranked among the top three causes of cancer-related death in 46 countries. And the number of people diagnosed where they're dying from liver cancer is likely to increase by more than 50% uh, in the next 20 years. So overall, a major problem, but the good news is that we are making progress. And so this is a study done by Dr. Salem and colleagues at Northwestern showing that the treatment of HCC, it's not from left to right. It's not like patients are diagnosed with early stage disease, you do one thing, and then you just march along the BCLC algorithm and get to systemic therapy. It's really more of a zigzag like you see in this network map where maybe they'll see interventional radiology first and then they'll go to someone like me and get systemic therapy and then I'll send the patient back to Dr. Salem and interventional radiology to do some more treatments. And so in this study, it was over 300 patients and they showed that in the Northwestern Multidisciplinary Clinic, they deviated from the BCLC guidelines more than 70% of the time but people got individualized care, and the median overall survival was longer than what was predicted by the BCLC stage guidelines. And so overall, people got more treatment, and they live longer. So with individualized care, we can do better for patients. And so this is the staging system. As we know, in HCC, we don't use the TNM staging system, the tumor nodes and metastasis staging system 1, 2, 3, 4. We use this BCLC staging system of ABCD. Over on the left are the early stage disease patients. Over on the right are the late stage, terminal, terminally ill, not getting any treatment patients. And for a long time, the treatment was compartmentalized, where people had early stage disease, they went to resection, ablation, or transplant. People had late stage disease, they went to systemic therapy. And 
in all of our multidisciplinary clinics, we all went left and right a little bit, but we didn't have data. And what's really exciting about where we are in the last six to 12 months is now we have data of things shifting along the spectrum of uh, A to C. And so we're going to talk today about how systemic, ther uh, systemic therapy is marching leftwards, and there may be a role for systemic therapy in the adjuvant setting after ablation or resection, and there may be a role for systemic therapy in the intermediate stage section after TACE. And we look forward to a discussion around whether the recent trials have changed the standard of care. And so overall, just like with Dr. Salem's study, there have been m multiple teams that have shown that multidisciplinary care uh, helps people get more treatment and also helps people live longer. So I think many of us come from institutions or are part of practices where we have great relationships across specialties, and this is key for our patients. Okay, Clinical Consult 1, passing over to Dr. Salem. Thank you, Lipika. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, present. And so let's, let's dig in a little bit deeper here. And so let's start to contextualize a little bit what we are talking about. And in the BCLCB patient, this is a patient with several tumors on the right lobe, multifocal disease. This is BCLCB, good performance status, et cetera, without, without PVT. So uh, there may be several discussions as to what we do with this kind of case, but let's at least put this image in our mind and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But let's see, let's see what we have for evidence. So you heard Lipka talk about that. There clearly is a rationale to combine LRTs and systemic therapy. No doubt about it. We know that intermediate HCC is quite heterogeneous. In fact, a lot of the stages are in fact heterogeneous, but we're addressing intermediate these days um, uh, based on burden and function, et cetera. And we know that in general, when you have a more disease burden, the, the efficacy uh, certainly drops. And one of the critical components that you have to at least capitalize on as an interventional radiologist is when, when am I switching from local therapy to systemic therapy? Because in general, patients need to have preserved uh, liver function. At least, you know, A would be great, B7 to get systemic therapy. And of course, now we have level one evidence, right? So we have to put all of these things together. So we have to start to think about these concepts as more and more data emerge and as more and more options become available for patients. You heard Lipka talk about this, right? So now we are seeing traditionally sort of the left to right uh, and uh, right to left shifting, depending on how you are, you are doing things. But earlier in the, in the staging systems, you talk about local regional therapies and the A, Bs and rarely Cs, and then the reverse exists. But now these, I think these therapeutic algorithms sort of more complement each other where there's much more of an overlap now. And I think there's more effect now on the systemic therapies in the earlier disease and the Bs and in some As, as we talked about, as Rebecca talked about, and now even now role potentially of local therapies up to the advanced setting now with studies such as launch and other things. Now, when you think about chemoembolization and, and local therapies, there are scoring systems that exist uh, and there are real challenges that exist. One is when can I apply this therapy? When should I apply this therapy? Uh, when should I stop? When should I transition to something else? And of course, uh, there are many, many sort of prognostic tools that are used. One of them is a 6 to 12, where you add the largest lesion, the number of lesions, and you get a score, and then you uh, create three compartments, three strata, and you see how patients do. And so obviously, the lower the number, the better patients do. But you can start to think about, well, am I, am, is this patient starting to exceed and get into the third strata where I'm going to lose some of the benefit of local therapy? And should I transfer and now uh, migrate to systemic therapy because, because their liver functions are still intact. So these are things that we need to be thinking about because Lipica is right. Right now, the, the, um, while the IR oncology relationship was strong before, it's going to have to get stronger now with the emergence of uh, data. Assessing response to taste can be challenging as well. 
Um, and uh, the presence of lipiol can cause some challenges. There are some ways to measure response with flow and with enhancement, et cetera. But certainly the larger the lesions get, the more multifocal they get, the more you're confounded by simultaneous treated and untreated disease. Which ones do you measure? Do you count them all? And also the, the real issue of the mathematical artifact of having difficulty in reaching a PR or PD when you have large dominant lesions because the math is favored by that one lesion. And so here you can see that there are ways to think about the amount of disease you have in the, in the up to seven or smaller tumors. And again, start to think about, well, this is going to be complicated to assess response. If there's any progress progressive disease, the liver function may deteriorate, and I may not be able to transition to something that has been shown to have a survival benefit. So again, this interplay becomes more and more important. Now, there have been uh, several attempts to add TKIs. Uh, to the uh, chemoembolization uh, regimens. Uh, a lot of randomized trials have been done. None of them have really succeeded in moving that forward. Uh, they've been done with, uh, with serafinib and, and um, brivinib and other TKIs. And none of them, again, have sort of moved things forward. And you can see here, when you look at uh, TACE in randomized trials, you know, the highest TTP you see there is about eight months. And that's about right. And that might come up a little bit later on, but that's about right. About eight months later, you need to do something else in that, in that, in that lesion. But um, most, all of them or none of them really showed a, a benefit in that endpoint, with the exception of tactics, uh, using the concept of time to untreatable progression to see, well, how many treatments can I apply uh, until we reach a clinically relevant endpoint, which is untreatable progression that we'll talk about a little bit later on. So again, a very dynamic, uh, very dynamic field. We're all excited about new data always, right? So, so this year is no different. We have Emerald uh, One data that just read out uh, and was presented um, um, a couple of weeks ago at ASCO GI. Uh, patients with HCC, they permitted patients with VP1 and VP2. Uh, you could pick your modality, Deptase or TACE, uh, and we're randomized to um, you receive TACE as the standard of care, but uh, Derva, DervaBev, or nothing else, or, or placebo. And... Um, a very large study, international randomized uh, phase three trial. And interestingly, and I think uh, new to sort of as a message for us is the fact that these patients now actually got DERVA early, right? So we all talk about combination. Well, I'm going to do combination. Well, when is the combination? Is it now and in a month? Is that really combination? I don't know. I don't know that I would call that combination. But this is sort of a true combination, right? So you really are getting your local therapy and getting your, your DERVA. And then in the TACE arm, you get that at month four. So I think 16 weeks was when that was started. So a very interesting design, but a true design of a true combination, right? People were getting the two therapies simultaneously. I think that term has been used kind of loosely and probably incorrectly historically when you talk about combination. From a, from a, from a context standpoint for us as IRs, most people got one or two treatments, right? I think when we think about number of times we embolize people, one, two, maybe three, maybe four, but about 60% of the time, they got one or two embolizations. Again, right standard of care, exactly what we would expect. So really the, the, the methodology was based on, on standard. And, and uh, excitingly, we have positive data. The PFS went from eight months to 15 months with a hazard ratio of, of 77, right? So basically a 23% risk reduction of PFS at any one time if you were on the Derva-Tase arm. So the Derva-Tase was uh, positive. That's what we're gonna focus on here but very important, very exciting. So now we can sort of delay the progression uh, of these patients when, uh, when you're treated. Um, uh, for us as IRs, uh, you know, we don't know what the AEs are. We think about Avastin uh, and whether that might challenge us. Uh, now, uh, patients had already been treated, and I think that was the design to have Avastin after all the LRT. 
So we have hypertension, proteinuria, the usual stuff. These are the grade three. So nothing sort of out of the ordinary, nothing that would sort of make us uh, sort of look twice and be uh, excessively concerned, but very important. So uh, let's hold a little bit here and just spend a minute talking about this. And, and if I can ask Lipica, so this is a case that I asked you guys to contextualize. So multifocal uh, right lobe disease uh, and, uh, you know, lar large tumors, et cetera. And so this is sort of textbook uh, BCLC-B, maybe a bad B, but textbook BCLC-B. And so maybe, Lipica, if I can ask you, so uh, you have Emerald 1, I just presented Emerald 1, and what are your thoughts on taste? Would you combine? Are, are you, are you, have you switched your entire practice now in the last week? Uh, but what are your thoughts on this case now? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're all really excited about the Emerald 1 data. You know, the first positive study of combining IO plus liver-directed therapy uh, for HCC in the intermediate stage. Uh, the question is, is it going to change practice? And so the primary endpoint was PFS, and certainly now with IO and people being able to get treatments later on, there is the, um, we often use PFS to start with, and the question is, what are the mature data going to look like with the OS as well? You know, I think that the key with all of our HCC studies and in cancer in general is always about patient selection and who's going to benefit the most. I think 15 versus eight months for a PFS difference is definitely significant and really impressive. Uh, and as Riyad mentioned, the overall toxicity was not unsurprising and reasonable with um, BEV plus DORVA. You know, the couple of things that I think about are uh, this study while it answered some questions, it also raised a lot of questions. So first, who are the best patients that are going to really benefit from this? Because what's the role of systemic therapy? I think of it as it mops up micrometastatic disease. It's the cleanup, you know, with local treatments, such as everything all of you do here with interventional radiology treatments and surgery. I feel like you take out the bulk of the tumor and then Medonc is there to try to do any cleanup of micrometastatic disease. The question is, with DERVA plus BEV, are we curing people or are we just pushing the um, time of recurrence down the road? And so I think with time, we'll be able to figure that out. So here, in this case, overall, this is a, a bad-looking tumor, but also doesn't have some of the other higher-risk features, such as bilobar involvement or macrovascular involvement. So I would say at this point in my practice, this is a conversation with patients with shared decision-making as to whether or not to institute BEV and DERVA. And then just one thing to, to highlight, I mean, one of the designs of Emerald 1, of course, was to include VP1, VP2, and I think most of us are still comfortable embolizing, you know, small segmental PVT, so I think that's relevant. So let's, let's take a look now at, at what else we have and what else is going on. So there is the Emerald 3 trial. Uh, that basically um, has taste as the as the standard of care, uh, the usual uh, inclusion criteria, and then um, stride regimen or stride plus LEN. And so uh, we're going to be very excited, obviously, to see these outcomes as well, to see you know whether that that conversation shifts or changes or is modified in any way when uh, when we see these types of outcomes. There is the demand trial um, that uh, adds taste to a tezobeb and intermediate HCC. Now, one note of caution. A lot of these trials are, are labeled as intermediate. And then when you look at actually the patients in there, about a third are A's and maybe 20% are C's and then the rest are intermediate, about 60%. So uh, just a little nuance and an important detail. They're not all intermediate, right? So there's always a, a hodgepodge of cases, but the spirit is there to try to capture that patient population because that's very important. There's LEAP12, of course, uh, that is also, we're waiting uh, a readout 
Lenpem uh, with chemoembolization. So there's a lot of exciting things that are that are going on that I think are, as as the graph depicted earlier, going into sort of the the left hand side. Uh, systemic therapy is going into the left hand side. There's some Y90 uh, interest, obviously. There's the Emerald Y90 with AstraZeneca, uh, Derva Derva uh, Bev, sort of similar to the um, uh, to the Emerald One uh, regimen, basically to see what that does with Y90. And we're going to have central dosimetry on these patients. Similarly with the Roan, central dosimetry, looking at response rate uh, with, with a stride regimen, right? So a lot of interest. This is what, where the, the, the practice is moving. And, and we as IR certainly want to, want to tag along and, and, and jump on for the ride, should I, should I say. Um, there's other uh, trials that are ongoing, and you can find these at clinicaltrials.gov. But again, a lot of interest now. Combination is here. It's here to stay. So when you think about some take-home points, um, there's clearly a rationale, right? There are both All therapies have some limitations. We're trying to sort of fit the two in some sort of puzzle so we can capitalize on each therapy's uh, weaknesses. Um, what I learned from Emerald One is that the combination is safe. It really sort of solidifies the fact that many of us have been doing these combos um, off trial um, in real life, uh, and we haven't really seen, you know, things that make us sort of that give us pause and make us change what we do. Uh, and I think Emerald One solidifies that. And, and while, while I'm very fortunate to have a great relationship with people like Lipica and others, um, the IR oncology relationship now is going to have to be solidified even more uh, than you have. And so I encourage everybody to really reach out to medical oncology. Again, as Lipica showed, when more people are involved, patient outcome is better. That's how you personalize care and patients are going to do better. So Lipica, over to you. So now further conversation about immunotherapy potentially moving leftward. So what's the role of immunotherapy in patients who undergo surgery? So here is a case, a woman named Barbara, 58 years old, has BCLC stage A disease that's amenable to surgical resection, good liver function, good performance status, no cirrhosis or portal hypertension, had a high AFP of around 5,000. So Riyadh, when you see someone like this in multidisciplinary clinic, how do you think about this patient? So they're, they're I mean, they're uh, they're not cirrhotic, which which I like obviously, but their AFP is, is five thousand, right? So that's a high risk uh, high risk feature. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I'd like to figure out ways to get this patient uh, resected if possible. Uh, and uh, you know, there are various tools that we can use in in IR to hypertrophy the right side, whether it be with treatment or with uh, embol portal vein embolization, et cetera. But I'm trying to get this patient to the operating room. So right away, when I see this, I'm doing tumor measurements. I'm doing uh, um, left uh, FLR segment two, three, four measurements and started planning how I'm going to treat this patient. Last night I dinner, at dinner, I heard from some IRs about hepatic vein embolization plus portal vein embolization. Yes, yes. so hepatic vein deprivation, that's correct. Deprivation, so, yeah. That's right. So it takes uh, the portal vein and the outflow on the, on the hepatic venous side, which surprisingly, as crazy as it sounds, is actually relatively well tolerated by patients. You would think there'd be many, many, many cases of, say, ascites, et cetera, because you're including the hepatic venous outflow, but interestingly, they, they tolerate it relatively well. And what are the times where you might use hepatic vein deprivation as opposed to just PVE? Well, to be honest with you, I think I think hepatic vein deprivation is really something that's been pioneered pioneered in Europe, and we're learning from their experience. They've got outstanding experience, and so um, certainly uh, the groups in, in Europe are doing that. So so more and more, when I when I need to do a PVE, I'm doing more PVE and, and a deprivation, because in the, in the few cases that we've done, it's been outstanding. Fantastic. Good to know. Learn something new every day in IR. Um, so, you know, we know with HCC, there is an immunosuppressive microenvironment. 
And what have we learned about PDL1 expression? We know across cancers, generally speaking, PDL1 is not a good predictive marker for who's going to respond to immunotherapy. Generally, the best amino, the best markers for response to immunotherapy are microsatellite instability and tumor mutational burden. And then in lung cancer, for example, we use PDL1. But in HCC, looking at the nivolumab study, looking at the Atezobev study, looking at various studies, PDL1 expression has not been a good predictor. So how are we going to select these patients? So this was a paper that came out of um, Dr. Sia and Dr. Lovett's lab, and uh, they identified this immune class of 30% of HCCs with 20% having this active immune signature. And overall, this is complicated to do in real life for everyday patients, but we're moving towards identifying biomarkers to figure out who's really going to benefit from these therapies. And so for hepatic resection, overall, we know the guidelines, usually single nodules, any size, but even now with some multifocal tumors, we're doing resection, no clinically significant portal hypertension, platelets greater than 1,000 we look for. We look for people not having significant splenomegaly. Um, and then one of the things the surgeons certainly look for is how much future liver remnant are we going to have? So they need at least 20% for a normal liver, at least 30% if someone has fibrosis, and at least 40% if someone has cirrhosis. So Riyadh, how do you think about this for if the surgeon says, you know what, I don't have enough, I'm not going to have enough liver left over if I do a resection. How do you think about this for Y90 and taste? So again, this this goes back to what the tool, what what, to, what uh, we have in the toolbox, and now with some of the um, advent of the, of what we do with Y90, for example, and hypertrophying that. Certainly, that is a very promising methodology because of the embedded um, test of time, which I think is a is an unmet need in surgery. I think we resect too quickly sometimes, and then a month or two months later, there's disease everywhere. So I think just like in transplant. We need to treat patients, embed a test of time, and then resect, just like we do uh, in liver transplantation. And of course, these numbers are utilized depending on the amount of disease that they're, that, of, uh, of cirrhosis uh, that exists, if any. So it sounds like that partnership gives us two benefits. One is the biological test of time, and then two, giving us more liver to deal with so people have low, lower risk of liver failure afterwards. Right. Right. That's fantastic. Um, so we know that the recurrence rate of HCC after resection is around 70 to 80 percent. So what are the factors that are associated with outcomes? Um, we know that overall, uh, when people have single nodules, the recurrence rate, is, the five-year overall survival is around 57 percent. If they have three or more, it drops to 26 percent. If they have a tumor size that's less than five centimeters, they have a lower recurrence rate than if it's more than five centimeters tumor-free margin. Obviously, we all want R0 resections. People have fewer, um, recur less and live longer. And then also blood loss makes a difference if people had less than one liter versus more than one or two liters. And we have done studies in the adjuvant setting with serafinib. People couldn't even complete the full course of serafinib adjuvantly. And the STORM trial was a negative trial. So for the last several decades, we have not had any adjuvant therapy for HCC. But exciting news from last year was data coming out from I Am Brave 050, which was an adjuvant study after ablation or resection for patients with high-risk disease who got a Tezo and Bev versus uh, observation uh, in uh, the you know post-ablation or resection setting, at least four to 12 weeks afterward. Then people were allowed to get one cycle of TACE uh, after treatment. And what were the high-risk features? So similar to the ones we went over on the previous slide, tumor more than five centimeters, more than three tumors, 
having macrovascular invasion. They only allowed VP1 and 2, not 3 and 4. Um, people having LVI on their pathology or microvascular invasion and poorly differentiated histology. And here, crossover was allowed. And the primary endpoint here was recurrence-free survival. So we're seeing a theme here for these uh, local regional therapies like surgery, ablation, taste, having PFS, RFS as our uh, primary endpoint. And it was a positive study uh, with the median um, recurrence-free survival not being met in the atezobev arm. Um, or in the um, active surveillance arm, and the hazard ratio was 0.72. And so and the hazard ratio for emerald one was 0.77. And overall in HCC, the studies have shown that when you have a hazard ratio of less than 0.6, that's when PFS correlates with OS. So certainly the 0.72 and 0.77 are positive, very encouraging. These are positive studies. Um, whether they will correlate with uh, increase in meeting OS, uh, we will tell, will, time will tell. So the question is, will we improve survival? Again, as I was mentioning, with MedOnc, our goal is to mop up any micrometastatic disease. So by putting people through one year of adjuvant atezobev, are we curing people or are we just pushing out time to recurrence? So this is a analysis looking at how many people were recurrence-free at uh, two years, and it was about 50%. And so what this study basically did was push out the prognosis for people with high-risk disease to what's similar to people with intermediate-risk disease. But here you can see a nice separation of curves between high-risk, intermediate-risk, and low-risk, and you're not seeing as much of a separation of the curves uh, later on. So the question is, are you mainly pushing out the time to recurrence? And what we really need is data at two years, three years, four years, have more mature data to see, are we doing this? Um, one more key piece is around adverse events. And the number of deaths in the Tezobev arm was six. The number of deaths in the active surveillance arm was one. Now, many of these were not treatment related, but it's not a free lunch when we as medonks give bevacizumab and atezolizumab. Um, as Riyadh was saying, certainly in Emerald one the treatment was well tolerated. But there was, you know, some percentage around 2% of grade 3, 4 esophageal hemorrhage. There was a slightly higher rate of grade 3, 4, you know, hypertension and proteinuria, which of course are manageable. But uh, some of these patients may have been cured, right? Because after surgery and also after taste, people are in one of three buckets. They either are cured and the cancer is never going to come back again. They have 100 cells floating around. You give them adjuvant therapy and then you cure them or they have a thousand cells floating around, you give them adjuvant therapy and they still, you're not able to cure them because you're not able to mop up all that micrometastatic disease. And we still don't know right now how, at which bucket people are in, maybe CTDNA or other biomarkers will be able to tell us if people are cured or not. But because of that, we have to really be mindful of like who we're giving systemic therapy to. So overall, potentially it's less effective to prevent recurrence in the second year. So again, we need more mature data. It could just be delaying recurrence. And so there are multiple adjuvant uh, immunotherapy studies going on. We're excited about I Am Brave 050. My own personal practice is I have a conversation with patients who have high-risk disease to at least consider it. And so now moving on to consult number two, looking at uh, immunotherapy in the advanced setting. And so we have this patient, a 66-year-old man with multifocal HCC. He's had taste twice, and now he has progression. He has preserved liver function, good performance status, 
And now on recent scans, he has bilobar progression and no macrovascular invasion. So of course, this comes up in multidisciplinary clinic all the time. When is the best time to shift from TACE to systemic therapy? So what do you think, Riyadh? Yeah, so this person's been embolized a few times, presumably um, in a selective manner, and, and now we have disease that's bilobar, which would mandate the use of sort of a lobar injections if you're going to re-embolize this patient, which is really a no-no that's not very well tolerated. Uh, and so this is sort of uh, what I would call you know, textbook, obviously textbook refractory. This is the time with preserved performance status and, and synthetic liver function to sort of shift to the next side. And, and uh, so for me, this would be a systemic therapy uh, candidate. And if we go to the next slide very quickly, the concept of taste unsuitability or, or, or refractoriness or progression is something I think you need to be uh, thinking about. The first thing is, if you embolize somebody and then they develop PVT or metastases, that's an obvious uh, um, sort of untasteable anymore. That person needs to, needs to migrate. But there are concepts that people think about with small tumors becoming large tumors uh, based on criteria, based on up to seven, et cetera. And there are some patients that are going to progress relatively quickly large infiltrative multifocal disease, et cetera. So you want to be thinking about that. From an objective standpoint, sometimes people use the number two where you're technically allowed to embolize something twice um, um, per lesion or per area before you declare it progression. Uh, the problem is the math adds up very quickly. If you have bilobar disease and you want to do something segmental, I mean, you're, you're talking five, six, seven embolizations, right? So that term, again, is sort of used a little bit loosely and not very clear. Uh, and uh, But in general, twice. You can try something a second time. I think that's reasonable if you use your judgment. But once you get to three, four, five, six times, that's, that's really being unreasonable. You really have to be shifting. Riyad, how do you use time to progression? So let's say someone has one spot, you taste it. They have another spot, you taste it. And they have a third spot. So you can taste it. But let's say their time to progression is like two months. Like every time you do a scan, they've got a new spot. You definitely have disease that you can taste because it's small and accessible. How do you think about the time course of progression? So it's it's an arbitrary number, but for me, anything that is happening quickly in a time frame of six months is 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 what I use. Um, so if every time I do something, two months later there's another lesion, and there's another lesion, and there's another lesion. There's, there's probably some sort of biology that I'm missing, and, and I'm never going to defeat that. But there are cases where you do something and then 10 months later, something pops up that you can treat very quickly and then another 10 months. So it's artificial, but I think six months is a reasonable number because one, you can see and actually confirm progressive disease, which I think is sometimes uh, difficult to do. Um, and then you can get sort of a, a test of time uh, and then think about when you want to sort of migrate to, to something else. But six months is sort of the number that I use. Fantastic. Very helpful. And so this is the excitement in medical oncology over the last 10 years. Uh, back in 2007, all we had was serafinib. And I remember in multiclinic often saying sort of no matter who the patient was, I would ask our interventional radiologist, can you do something? Because I don't really want to start serafinib because it's a really tough drug. It's not that effective. The response rate is 2%. The median survival on serafinib is a little over or was a little over 11 months with the SHARP study. And so we were um, often doing Y90, TACE, et cetera, even in patients who had um, extensive portal vein thrombosis and sometimes even in patients who had lung metastases. And now we've had multiple new um, approvals, and the most exciting in the last couple of years have been the approval of atezolizumab and bevacizumab and dervalimab and tremolimumab. We all know that atezolizumab is a PD-L1 inhibitor and bevacizumab is a VEGF inhibitor. We all know that with Dervatremi, Dervalimab is a PDL1 inhibitor, and Tremolimab is a CTLA4 antibody, so two different checkpoint inhibitors. 
And so what do the data look like? So this slide uh, juxtaposes the data, but of course, this is not a head-to-head -head comparison. These are two separate trials, so the caveats of cross-trial comparison. So in the I Am Brave uh, 150 study with Atezobev versus Serafinib, the median survival was 19.2 months. The median PFS was 6.9 months, and the overall response rate was 30%, with a complete response rate of 8%, and a median duration of response of 18 months. With Himalaya, with the combination of Dorva plus Tremi, it's called the STRIDE regimen, where you give tremolimumab once at 75 milligrams, um, and then you give that in combination with Durva, and then you give Durva once a month, every four weeks, you just give Durva alone. And that study, the median survival was 16.4 months. You see the PFS there at 3.8 months. Response rate was 20%, and the median duration of response was prolonged at 22 months. Um, a couple of things about these two studies. I Am Brave 150 allowed patients with main portal vein thrombosis. It also required patients to have an EGD within six months because we were giving bevacizumab and we wanted to minimize the risk of variceal bleeding. Um, it also had about 50% of patients had hepatitis B. In the Himalaya study, it did not allow patients with main portal vein thrombosis, and it had about 30% of patients with hepatitis B. And we know that, um, you know, responses can be higher in patients with hepatitis B. So again, there's caveats of comparing directly the overall survival and data and the ORRs. Um, and then when we analyzed these options with the I Am Brave 150 study, there was uh, the median OS and the PFS were the co-primary endpoints. And the landmark analysis that they did was around 18 months. And you see that the median overall survival around 18 months was about 52%. And then in Himalaya, they did a landmark analysis that was pre-planned at three years and then also at four years. And this is the remarkable part about immunotherapy, that there's some people who are living four years now with advanced stage BCLC stage C disease. Um, and that's what we find really encouraging. And, you know, for a long time when we had chemotherapy trials, what was so important to us was median OS. But remember that the way chemotherapy works is very different than the way immunotherapy work works. Uh, chemotherapy and targeted therapy actively kill cancer cells, or they cause um, cytostatic effect. Immunotherapy doesn't work directly on cancer cells, right? The way immunotherapy works is it works on your immune system to recognize your cancer as a foreign invader, and then your immune system is trained to be able to um, clear the cancer. And so the benefit of the latter is that you can have the memory of your immune system continue to be able to address the cancer. And that's why we're seeing this prolonged curves. And so the question is, in the era of immunotherapy, are we thinking about the right time point? Should we only be thinking about median overall survival? Or should we also be thinking about these landmark analyses? And should we really be asking all companies to provide two-year, three-year, four-year data to see what that tail looks like? And then it's a conversation with patients about how we think about regimens. So in terms of the safety considerations, we all know with bevacizumab, there is a concern for bleeding. But overall, with this uh, six-month EG, EGD within six months, the rate of bleeding was actually relatively low on the atezobev arm. It was around 6% in both the atezobev arm and the serafinib arm. And overall, as you can see on the left side, atezobev was better tolerated than serafinib on uh, most fronts. There was just more hypertension um, in the atezobev arm. And then in Himalaya, on the left side here, we have Durva Tremi. On the right side, we actually have Durva here. And the point of this is to show 
that actually when you add tremolimumab, there isn't a significant increase in hepatic events. This was something that was surprising to me. I would think that there'd be a higher rate of immune-related adverse events in um, the liver, but there wasn't a significant higher rate of hepatitis. There was a slightly higher rate of um, hypothyroidism, which of course is very manageable, um, and hyperthyroidism, and some more dermatitis and diarrhea, also manageable. But overall, adding that one dose of tremolimumab was safe, and we saw the duration of response was certainly higher when you add the tremolimumab. And so how do we decide? What should people go on? So overall, if someone is a candidate for immunotherapy, I think both atezobab and dervatremi are excellent options. Um, and if someone is not a candidate for dual treatment, then I do think about single-agent PD-1. Um, and then especially so, these are people who are maybe have more comorbidities, maybe have child pub disease. I think about single-agent PD-1. And of course, um, linvatinib and serafinib are still options for patients. And we know from the LEAP002 data that linvatinib has a 19-month overall survival, so certainly an option as well. So moving to case three, uh, what are the factors that guide our selection? So anyone who's a candidate for immunotherapy certainly go for immunotherapy. Um, and uh, how we choose a specific regimen is really looking at people's comorbidities and the toxicity of bevacizumab versus tremolimumab. Um, and then what are the safety considerations? I think we just talked about some of those. And then for child PUB, I generally tend to use single agent um, checkpoint inhibitor or a TKI. But now there's actually some trials going on with, you know, a tezobev in patients with child PUB and some other studies. And so I think overall we're generating new data in the field. Thanks, Lipica. So just to start closing off, we have a few minutes left. The last case to talk about is to really sort of bring up a different uh, concept that I think um, the launch trial brings up, which is the idea that we have here a 66-year-old patient HBV, uh, good performance status, child PUA, has a vascular invasion uh, with right-sided PVT, but also a couple of lung metastases. So this is, this is, PV, this is BCLCC because of both PVT and metastatic disease. Um, and so it sort of brings up the uh, sort of a different uh, thought process. We've sort of been talking about the use of systemic therapies in the uh, early and intermediate stage, but what about the use of local therapies in the advanced stage? Let's, let's sort of flip it on its head. And uh, I would suggest uh, people sort of read the, the launch trial. There are some limitations to it, HBV population, I get it. But the fact that you add chemoembolization to LEN in the advanced setting and improve overall survival in a several hundred patient, you know, randomized phase three trial is of interest and really brings up this concept of, wait a minute, if somebody has large hepatic dominant lesion and one or two small metastases, um, are all metastases you know, created equal? Is it the same thing? And then the concept of pattern of progression emerges, right? You have to start thinking about, well, is this PD just local PD in the portal vein with invasion? Or is this a new nodule in the liver that I can embolize or ablate or resect or do something else? Or is this truly bilateral adrenal metastases, bilateral lung metastases? You know, those are going to have different uh, um, outputs, but the reality is looking at time to EHD, extrapatic disease, or vascular invasion are going to be sort of re very relevant endpoints when we start looking at this because we have so many options that are available for, uh, for patients. So um, starting to close things off, when you think about future directions now, we're clearly messaging the combination is here. We have to work together. Uh, and there's no doubt that both are needed, sort of like a, a piece of a puzzle. You have to think about burden and your ability to treat disease and maintaining liver function so that patients can tolerate uh, systemic therapies. That's clearly something that should be part of your guiding, uh, your guiding uh, principles. 
and really sort of shared decision making at the tumor board with oncology and 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 hepatology and surgery. There's a lot of unmet needs, right? We still don't have good biomarkers. What what should we do? What uh, therapy should we pick? We don't have any of that information. To me, the closest one is sort of a morphologic imaging biomarker. What does a d- disease look like at baseline with location of PVT, extrahepatic disease, and or the liver? And I think that's the closest thing we have other than a- AFP. <clears throat> Looking at resistance to uh, immune checkpoint inhibition, can we counter that with uh, different types of therapy, different local therapies? I think it's going to be very uh, important. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in these types of therapies in the, in the transplant patient population, so that data is going to emerge. And then, of course, as IRs, we always have to think about scores that we may use and help us to better recognize when we think about transitioning patients. Because, again, we've seen many, many studies that show that when patients are exposed to all of the beneficial treatments, their outcomes are going to be, they're, they're going to be optimized. So you really want a patient throughout their lifespan to benefit from everything that's available. So as Lipica said early on, that HCC um, uh, journey is more of a network map, uh, sort of a zigzag as opposed to a left to right or right to left. And um, I'm excited because um, others now really have to solidify and mature their relationship with medical oncology, something that we've been doing for 20 plus years, but really now is becoming standard and mandatory if you're going to provide modern care, personalized uh, medicine for patients. Combining these therapies now are clearly safe. Uh, not everything's going to be based on on the highest level evidence that you have, but clearly we can do things uh, safely. And of course, that multidisciplinary discussion really permits you, when everybody's involved, four studies here showing that basically the OS is improved when you optimize selection, depending on the stage, depending on the group, et cetera. So this is clearly something that I think is 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 embedded now in guiding principles in the multidisciplinary uh, the multidisciplinary team. Yeah, one of the questions that came up, and please like. Uh, raise your hand if you have a question from the audience um, about Y90 and systemic therapy. And so a lot of these studies have been with TACE. Um, would you apply Emerald One in a Y90 setting? Are we there for that? Are we ready for that yet? Or would you wait for Emerald Y90 to apply that? Yeah. So I'm, 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 I am I'm like to think of myself as a pragmatist, not a purist. If I'm a purist, the answer is no, but I'm a pragmatist. And, and to me, um, all this does is solidify. We're already doing off-study combinations, and we're, we've shown that it's safe. So I don't apply the benefit uh, to tear as opposed to taste given the data, but I do apply the safety of the combination. And hopefully when we look at the data, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be just as good, if not better. So the question it was asking about the last case, we had a patient with a vascular invasion and lung metastases and asking about the test of time. I mean, I think for me in this case, the reason we show that case is to bring up the discussion of the launch trial, which again, we, we, we suggest you read just for information, which is the first trial to show that adding a local therapy to somebody with advanced disease improves overall survival with its caveats and limitations. So, so personally, I still think I would do systemic therapy. If there was more liver burden in that patient, I might do something to the liver and add that taste like that launch trial does. But, but it was just sort of a demonstration to really get people thinking now, completely turn the concept on its head, adding a local therapy to advanced patients, something that would have been probably blasphemy about what, maybe two years ago, or maybe still is actually. Riyad, you presented um, a series of different staging systems in order to score um, how suitable people are for tastes and when to move to systemic therapy. Uh, there's a question from the audience about which one do you feel is most accurate and what do you use in clinical practice? Probably the ART score. There's an ART score that's used for chemoembolization uh, from that perspective, and that's been pioneered by, by the group and by groups in Europe. Uh, we look at that. Uh, we don't necessarily... Uh, 
we don't use a sort of black, it's not black and white for us because if we can do selective type treatments, lower the dose, et cetera, we will follow that. But, but something to look up is the art, art score. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash THZ860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids.